0: Folks, welcome to the podcast. Don't forget now. This same episode can be found on my YouTube page. If You want to get over there and check it out. We've actually got a map in this episode, and you'll want to get over there and look at that map and see what we got on it. And get over there as well. You need to click on the link in the description now, so you can. If you want to get a copy of the book or the documentary website facebook page folks thanks for listening in and i appreciate you hey folks jr back for another episode of echoes of shannon street case file this is going to be episode 10 who's on first we're going to listen to a little clip from the documentary shannon street echoes under a blood red moon and then we'll get into the statements we've got an officer statement a lieutenant's statement and a captain's statement. I remember looking at Bobby Hester that night, uh, that evening, and he was leaning against the wall with his arms folded and his foot up against the wall and his head down with a little smirk smile that he had. And he was quiet. And everybody else's loud boisterous as guys usually are before roll call and everybody thought i was really quiet and i looked at him and kind of turned my head to sonny kind of grim and i remember thinking i could relate to this guy that's the last time i ever saw him all right folks before we get into the statements i wanted to mention something i keep forgetting to say something about it but A lot of these statements, or almost all of them, you see that they have the officer's home address and phone number in the statement. Sometimes they've got it up in the top in the header, and then they've got it down in the body of the statement, and I never did that. At the top, the home address was their precinct and the phone number for the precinct. I did that for two reasons. Number one, at some point this may become public information and people will be able to. Identify where an officer lives and what his phone number is number two You're gonna to have to give this information over in discovery To the defense attorneys well, The defense attorneys are going to talk to the defendants now. I'm not implying that defense attorneys would intentionally Provide information about the officers, but if they allow the Defendants to read the statements. They're going to see the officer's phone number and address It's just a bad practice. No department should allow their officers home addresses and phone numbers to be listed in Reports Statements or anything else the police departments involved in Patrolman Hightower what is your present duty assignment with the Memphis Police Department? Presently assigned to the North Precinct A-Shift car 121. Does car 121 run the area of 2239 Shannon? No, it doesn't. How long have you run car 121 on the A-Shift? Since January 1st, 1983. What was your present duty assignment prior to being on the night shift? Previously, I worked North Precinct C-Shift riding in car 128, that runs the Chelsea and Hollywood area, and my partner was Officer Ray Swill. Have you ever made a call to 2239 Shannon? Yes, I have, numerous times. When you would make the call to 2239 Shannon, who would you encounter and what type of calls were there? Normally they would be disturbance calls involving one or more members of the family. Normally they would involve the sons of Lindbergh Sanders, Linneo and Larry, at least one time it involved Lindbergh Sanders. Have you ever had to arrest any of the Sanders? Yes. Which one did you arrest? I have arrested both sons, Linnell and Larry, on narcotics charges. Have you ever had to use force in any of these arrests? No. Has any of the Sanders ever threatened you? No, not that I know of. Have any of the Sanders ever threatened your partner, Ray Swill? No. Before we go to page two, I just had to mention something I thought was strange. Officer Hightower worked 128 with Ray Swill. Then on January 1st, 1983, Officer Hightower went to the midnight shift. Ray Swill stayed in 128's ward. In Ray Swill's statement, he said, he had worked 128 for 21 months, he said a year and nine months. Yet he claims not to know Lindbergh Sanders or, or his son's Larnell or the second son, the one that uh, looked at, uh, Officer Hightower calls Larry. He claims not to know either one of them. I'm just wondering how Officer Hightower knows them all, but Ray Swill doesn't. I just thought that was kind of odd. On top of page two, they asked him a question regarding uh, who was normally involved in these disturbances at the house. Officer Hightower's answer is, normally there would be several people involved and there would be confusion, loud talking, no actual violence. Did you ever fear for your safety while you were in the house? No. How would Lindbergh Sanders talk to you? Lindbergh Sanders was relatively quiet. He wouldn't say a lot. In fact, at the time I was called to the house, another family member would speak on his behalf and explain the situation. Did you know of the religious meetings that were being held at 2239 Shannon? No, I did not. Have you ever received any complaints from any of the neighbors regarding any meetings being held at Sanders' home? No. Have you ever received any complaints regarding marijuana being smoked in the house? Yes. In fact, that is how we locked up the sons. We executed a search warrant at 2239 Shannon for storing and selling marijuana. Who obtained this warrant? As I recall, my partner obtained the warrant. My partner at the time was Officer John Shearer, who has since resigned from the department. Are you now aware of the hostage situation and the death of Lindbergh Sanders and his son, should be a Lina- Linnell Sanders and five other male blacks, along with Patrolman Hester? Yes. Did you make the call to 2239 Shannon? No, I was off that night. Side of Lindbergh Sanders and LaNell Sanders, there was a Cassell Harris killed inside the house. Do you know this Mel Black? I have seen him before, but I don't know him very well. To my knowledge, I have not arrested him. Do you know a David Jordan who was killed inside the house? Yes. How do you know David Jordan? I know David Jordan mainly through having made calls to his family's home. Do you know a Michael Coleman that was killed in the house? No. Do you know an Earl Thomas that was killed inside the house? No. Do you know Andrew Houston, also known as Juju, that was killed inside the house? Yes. How do you know this male black? I know him from the neighborhood, routine patrol in the neighborhood. The male blacks that you have stated that you knew that were killed inside the house, has any of them ever threatened you in any way? To my knowledge, they have never directly threatened me. How long did you ride in the area of Shannon Street? For approximately five years. During the time you rode out there, have you ever received any information from anyone that the people mentioned in this statement would want to harm you? No. Lieutenant, state your name for the record. J.J. Rogers. How long have you been employed by the Memphis Police Department? A little over 16 years. What is your present assignment and car number? Squad Commander, North Precinct C-Shift, car 106. Lieutenant Rogers, are you aware that this statement is being taped? Yes, I am. Lieutenant Rogers, on Tuesday, January 11, 1983, did you have the occasion to respond to a call at 2239 Shannon? Yes, I did. Lieutenant Rogers, I will ask you to state in your own words in detail everything that you observed, heard, and what actions you took after you arrived at 2239 Shannon. At approximately 9 p.m., I heard 128 calling for assistance, and I immediately proceeded to the address at 2239. Upon arriving on the scene, there were several squad cars already there and everybody running around, so I took position on the direct east side of the residence with Patrolman Colston. While there we could hear noises from inside the house, some males yelling. I recognized one of the voices as being Patrolman Hester. We could hear him yelling for everyone to clear the area and get away from the house, and it sounded like him being struck by possibly the parties inside the house, followed again by him yelling for us to leave the house. We just maintained our position until the TAC unit arrived, at which time we did clear the area. I should say a few minutes prior to the TAC unit arriving and relieving us, there was a shot fired in the rear of the house. It sounded like it came from inside the house. No one was hit by that shot. Approximately how many shots did you hear after you arrived at the house? I arrived after the initial shooting was over, and when I was In my position on the east side of the house, behind a vehicle in the driveway, I only heard one shot fired and it came from the southeast corner of the house and it sounded like a pistol shot. I believe it came from inside the house. While you were on the scene, did you have an occasion to fire your weapon? No. Do you know of any officer that fired their weapon after you arrived on the scene? No. There was only one shot fired, and I don't believe an officer fired it. I think it came from one of the suspects in the house. Did you ever have an occasion to see any of the occupants of the house? No, we could hear them, but never did see any of them. Did you see any of the officers that were injured after you arrived on the scene? Yes, when I arrived on the scene, Officer Turner was behind the van in the driveway on the east side of the house, and he had a large amount of blood streaming down his face and he was in a dazed condition. I immediately ordered a patrolman standing by to take him to the hospital, which he did. Do you know what type of injury Officer Turner had? It appeared to be a laceration to the top of his skull, above the hairline. It was too dark to get a better view of it, and there was a lot of blood. Cam Randall, what is your present assignment? Watch Commander C-Shift, North Precinct. Tuesday, January 11, 1983, did you have occasion to make a call to 2239 Shannon? Yes. State in your own words what you observed and what actions you took after arriving on the scene. As I approached the scene west on Hurd at Boxwood, I observed gun flashes from approximately three doors from my position. I exit the car, and went to a black van which was parked in the driveway next door to the above given address. After arriving at this position, I heard a number of gunshots unable to count from the rear of the house. When I moved to the front of the van to alongside a car, I believe it was a Pontiac parked between the houses. There was additional shots fired in the rear and at this time I heard a call from the front portion of the house stating that Officer Swill just ran out of the house. I then moved back to the rear of the van to try to observe Officer Swill's position. We were told by shouting from Officer Vidleys that he was in the street and that someone was with him. I believe he said, Downing. At this time, I moved back, took position at the Pontiac, which was between the houses, and overheard some shouting from the rear of the house It sounded like they were calling for more men to cover the rear. tenor Rogers and Officer Colt colston arrived and i moved from the position i was in back to the van and they took my position i was told then that an ambulance had moved down in position to take officer swill and i moved back to the rear of the van and found officer hanscombe watson and they stated that hester apparently still inside still was inside at this time officer turner staggered back and fell on the sidewalk i immediately turned him over observed his head injury and Got two officers that were unknown to me to move him back to Heard and Boxwood to be transported to the hospital for treatment. And this time forward, all firing or sounds of possible gunshots ceased. After removing Officer Turner, I began to move the cars that had begun to flood the streets back to a point beyond Boxwood Street. I then returned to the van and could hear shouting from the northeast portion of the house concerning what I thought was Officer Hester. Uh, then began to pick up a male black who described himself as Jesus and that he was fixing to blow this motherfucker's brains out. Then he began to say that he wanted light, gas, and water in the house so he could do. Officer Colston and Officer Woods, who had moved in position at the van, began to call back to this male black in response to his hysterical request. Most of these requests were in regards to shooting Officer Hester. At this time, Officer... I don't know what happened to the rest of that sentence. Oh, okay, he moved down here a little bit. At this time, Officer Hester began to call out, asking for no one to shoot. He continued to state, cease fire, cease fire, don't fire in the house. I don't know who's transcribing these statements, but Lord, they, they need to learn how to spell. All right, there was a number of exchanges as far as verbal shouting between Lieutenant Rogers, who was in position to talk to him at the window in the male black. At this point, it was apparent that he was attempting to use Officer Hester's radio. We didn't advise radio dispatcher Jim, it's supposed to be Weikert, and he attempted to clear the air to move all the cars over to the car-to-car frequency. After this was accomplished, Dispatcher Weichert instructed the male black into the proper use of the radio. From this point on, he continued to be hysterical and stated that he wanted to talk to DJ Morgan with WLOK radio. A number of times, he wanted Dispatcher Weichert to contact his radio announcer to call him at the residence in question. Then he changed his request and advised Officer Weichert that He wanted him on the radio and the telephone conversation to be on the radio because this is when he was going to blow this motherfucker's brains out, referring to the police officer. He continued this request, and because of his inability to use the radio properly, most of the shouting and the answering of his questions or requests were picked up by Lieutenant Rogers and Officer Woods. I advised Lieutenant Rogers and Officer Colston to keep the male black talking in an attempt to prevent him from doing any further harm to Officer Hester. Apparently there was others in the room because we could hear what sounded like blows to the officer. From this point, for approximately five minutes, there was not any sounds coming from the house. Then suddenly a male black who had been shouting before started calling out to whoever was outside that he was in charge and that his name was Jesus. If we wanted to talk to him, why don't we try to come inside? And we could see him blow the the officer's brains out. During this time, we continued to hear the officer being struck or what sounded like the officer being struck. And at the same time, the officer who we could recognize as Bob Hester saying, don't shoot, don't shoot in the house anymore. The male black who had stated that he was Jesus Then began to use the radio again, talking to dispatcher Weikert, wanting the DJ named Morgan at WLOK to get on the radio, call him by phone so he could have conversation with him before he killed the officer. He continually repeated that while he was on the radio with Morgan, he was going to blow the officer's brains out. Dispatcher Weikert continued an attempt to negotiate away from this request, but the male black would only overshout him on the radio. This went on. During this time, we had managed to secure the perimeter around the house, move all vehicles away from the front of the house and requested the TAC unit and negotiation, negotiating team in an attempt for the release of the officer. I was then notified by Lieutenant R.B. Summers that the rear of the house had been secured and Officer Russ Aiken had been inside the house, exchanged shots with parties inside the house, and had safely exited the house, and was covering the rear door along with his partner officer, Canada. All officers were then notified over the air to hold their position, and that they would be removed when TAC unit personnel arrived on the scene and could safely do so. Did Officer Hester ever holler out anything else other than that you have stated that you heard in the statement? At this time, that's all we heard. He continually shouted not to fire into the house. This is the only thing we heard from Officer Hester. It appeared or sounded as if he was in the room on the northeast corner of the house. The subject that was hollering for the disc jockey Morgan want to be on WLOK on radio station live. So all the people listening to this station could hear him kill police officer over the air. Yes, this was how we interpreted his request. He emphasized this not only on two or three occasions, but continually requested this. And I apologize for that previous question. I I think I made that into an answer rather than the question. All right, let's continue. Later on during the night, after the TAC unit had relieved your men, did you hear any other sounds coming from the house, especially Officer Hester? Yes, I did. It was somewhere around 3.30 a.m., 1-12-83. In fact, I had Patrolman Russ Aiken with the TAC unit giving them a description of the area in the house that he had been in who or how many he had been involved with during this portion of the firefight. I could hear what sounded like groanings. They were not very loud, but the house being very close together, it's not hard to pick up the sound. When I say groaning, it was obviously whoever was groaning, mumbling. It was more or less a aggravated type situation. I then moved out on the front porch of the house that I was in, which was on the east side of the house in question. I listened very closely and I did recognize the groaning as to be that of Officer Bob Hester. They didn't last long, but I did hear him say, don't do that, why don't you leave me alone? In reference to whatever or whoever was agitating him. I then went back inside the house and asked if anyone had heard what sounded like Bob Hester's voice and no one had seemed to overheard it. Then some 20 minutes could have passed as I was listening to the TAC officers set up an entry plan. I heard a scream. At this time, everyone in the house stated they heard the same. I heard. I moved them back to the front portion of the house, and this time it was very distinct, precise. It was Officer Hester, and he was calling for help, and you could hear blows being delivered to him. I then went to the TAC unit, CP, and advised. Please completion of the answer, he said he went back to the command post and he told, uh, now beginning on page four here, he told Captain Music and he and myself were en route to the command post in the school when we were approached by Chief Williams and at this time related to him what had occurred. Now Chief Williams is, if I'm not mistaken, the chief over special operations, which means the attack unit negotiators are his. While standing in the street at Boxwood and heard, we then overheard what sounded like another scream. Chief Williams moved then to the area on the front porch where I had heard the screams before, and at this time another series of blows were delivered to Officer Hester. This information was then made known to Director Holt and his staff. During this entire ordeal, did you ever fire your pistol or any other weapon? No. Anything else you'd like to add to this statement at this time? No. Okay, got an overview. This is uh, showing the position of all the officers that we took statements from, their location when they started responding to 2239 Shannon. I just uh, thought you'd like to see something like that. I would. I, I thought it was pretty cool to see where everybody was at where they were coming from when all this got uh, cranked up. And I guess this is probably gonna, we're probably getting to the end here on uh, on this episode. And I want y'all to know it's really hard reading some of this stuff. It really, really makes you angry to read some of this. And uh, anger directed at the suspects who can show such cruelty over hours and then also anger at the uh, police department for allowing it to happen but we'll get to that down the road and uh, we'll talk about why a hostage was allowed to be tortured to death for six to eight hours and it wasn't did anything right. okay well let's see, we've got Two more officer statements to take, I believe, that we'll go over. And then we will go into the negotiation part and we'll go through, we'll wade through that. Now, probably, we we may actually do the radio transmissions uh, when the dispatcher Weikert's talking to Sanders. We'll go from that and then we'll go right into the negotiations. The negotiators get there. And there's a lot of material to cover. Anyways, folks, I do appreciate y'all visiting and us going over this together. And uh, we will see you down the road.